Things are not what they seem. There, there's something about us that is susceptible to mistaking reality based on how it looks to us. And it's going to be the theme of the series we're starting tonight titled Appearances. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel 1. I, I'm doing this series for a few different reasons. One is I wanted to get us in an Old Testament book. My, my hope, part of your experience in being in youth and whatever years I, I get you is for you to fall in love with the Bible and for you to fall in love with the Old Testament. The, 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 the historical books in particular, they are so rich in what they present, the, the, the stories and the, the people that you meet there. There's just so much reality that helps us understand our own lives because, you know, they, they, they might be anywhere between a thousand years removed uh, from even the time of Jesus, which is where we're landing uh, in, our, in our text this evening, or further back, 2,000 years, reaching to Abraham and beyond, and yet human nature is so similar, and our need for God to rescue us is the same, and God's mercy is never changing. And so I want us to be able to encounter that in the chapters that we're going to study in 1 Samuel, chapters 1 through 18. But this book in particular addresses something that I believe we need help with. You know, we are, we are fascinated as a culture in particular with how things look. We live in such an image-driven society. And so, you know, Today, especially, you can't, you can't post anything on social media, any link anywhere. If, if it doesn't have some kind of picture attached to it, nobody's clicking on that. Because your, your eye is just not drawn to text and information and some lengthy explanation with footnotes. You don't want that. You want to you see something, and you want to form some conclusion based on what you see. And, uh, you know, the, the, the most clickbaity kind of uh, get, get the most hit articles, they, they, they tend to present that first image there that makes you want to find out more. And so I, I saw one posted today. This is actually pretty cool. I mean, if you're, you're a Disney fan, which I guess everybody is now that Disney Plus has arrived, um, th this artist did these hyper-realistic renderings of different Disney characters. And so you have Ariel from Little Mermaid. That's pretty good, isn't that? Uh, you have uh, Prince Eric, also from Little Mermaid, right? Any of the ladies have him pinned up on your wall? Uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, right? Uh, and Jafar and... Stop looking! <laughs> yes. Uh, actually, that, that, guy, that guy does look villainous, so they, they did a good job with that. Um... But the, the logo for our, our series is taken from Face App. And before you tell me about how that's so summer 2019, I know. But, you know, by the time things get used and abused in ministry context, they have to be stale anyway. Um, but Face App kind of picks up with that fascination that we have with images, with appearances, and with our ability to manipulate and to change them. And so it presents technology that can do that. Our game earlier highlighted that. But, you know, you got the uh, setting where you can go from young to old. You know, there's the setting when you can go from older to younger version of that person. Uh, you can take somebody who's not wearing makeup and change their style. You could take somebody who's not smiling 
and by artificial technology alone and make them appear to be smiling. And in all of these settings, the uh, you know save an extra edition of this in Russia somewhere is included for free, um, and and get your face shown up on one of their billboards at some point. Um, but we judge so much based on appearances, and things are not what they seem. We often draw the wrong conclusions. We, we constantly react based on how life looks to us. All right, so just give you a, a few scenarios. You show up maybe to school, maybe to a youth meeting, and one of your friends is being really standoffish, just not engaging you, doesn't seem really interested to be there or to start up a conversation with you. They just seem kind of real down in on themselves and standing aloof. What do you conclude about them? Right? They don't like you anymore. We're no longer friends. It's done. We don't even need to have any kind of conversation. It's, it's over. Right? You, you don't know what's going on in their world or what they might be experiencing or feeling, but you see something and you form some kind of mental conclusion based on that appearance. Or you want to do something, you want to be able to go somewhere with your friends, you want to be able to go out and do some experience, you want to be able to purchase something that everybody else has, and your parents say, that's not happening. Right, what do you conclude based on that? They're just out to get you, they just want, they just want to drain all the fun and freedom out of every feature of life. Is that what they're after you suddenly find yourself in competition with their wills and concluding something based on that. Or maybe there's something you've always wanted in life, some achievement you've always wanted to be able to do, some skill you've always wanted to develop, some relationship you hoped would come your way by now. And those things have just been delayed and delayed and there's one disappointment after another. You conclude God doesn't care about you because of that? It's just really easy to take how life appears and draw judgments based on that. But what if the way that we see life, the people around us, the way that we see ourselves, and even God often misses what's most important to recognize because we're too caught up in appearances? And Jesus brings us this same word in John 7, 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And, and, and 1 Samuel, it, it's just fascinating to see how often this point gets drilled down and driven home throughout the chapters that we're going to read here in particular. It trains us not to react to life based on appearances. And here's how the book Begins in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophin of the hill country of Ephraim, right? Don't get lost just because of all those words. Whose name was Elkanah, I just lost you, didn't I? The son of Jer Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Verse 2, it gets really interesting. He had two wives, all right? So now we're on a reality TV show drama. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. Actually, her name means fruitful, so she had some. 
But Hannah had no children. And Hannah's name means favored. The one who is favored. But her life doesn't look that way. Because what she longs for most, what makes her heart break, what causes her to shed tears and she can't even eat and, and she is in a, in a state of sadness and grief and bitter sorrow is that she does not have any children. And, and it, it's, it's estranged her relationship with her husband. He's wanting to know, aren't I enough for you? Why is, is life in this, this place that features disappointment? You know, we, have, we have a lot of good things going on over here. Right, life lesson, at some point, if you get married in the future, you walk through circumstances that aren't about your, hus- your husband or your wife. It's not really a- about uh, the relationship that's there, but-, but the strains and the stresses of life, it-, it causes you to call one another in question, call your affections in question. And so that's what they're experiencing here. And on top of that, she is a woman who is harassed. She has a rival, right? All those Disney characters that we put up on the screen a moment ago, they've got rivals. They're villains in their story. You know, you got like the arch villain or you got the person next to them who's always in competition. That's a feature of her story as well. And by the way, sometimes people are troubled by the fact that in the Old Testament, in, in these, these Bible stories that we read, you know, there's like the children's church version, and then there's the PG-13 version and beyond that y'all get introduced to more and more. And, and polygamy shows up, having more than one wife. And sometimes people read that and think, is, well, is the Bible okay with that? What kind of book is this? You know? But in every circumstance, whenever that happens, it is always creating problems. And so sometimes the Bible reports choices that people make that are stupid choices, and it's not endorsing them. It's not saying, hey, here'd be a great way to live your life. In fact, it wants you to see the fallout and the consequences of trying to live life on your own terms. And this man, he's a wealthy dude, enough to support two different families, but he's created some problems in his household. And we're supposed to see this. But look at how it's, how it's worded in verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And I don't know what that sounded like. You know, oh, Hannah, you know, you, you, you want to ride with us to church? You going to church this morning? I'm sure we could squeeze you in on the minivan. It might be a little hard. After all, there are so many kids there. But you are just one coming along, aren't you? You know, I don't know what that sounded like, but some way she's rubbing in the fact that she has something. She's experienced something that Hannah is on the outside of. And so there's jealousy and there's envy that's being experienced and, and forming the, the, the picture. But, but notice something, all right? There's more than just the human players involved. We could tell a whole drama about that and leave out this detail. The Lord, because the Lord had closed her womb. All right, so behind what's visible there is the activity of God. There's God's work 
and purpose. God's doing something in this moment. Now, does, does your understanding of God include things like that? Or is he just there to help out and give you what you want in life and make sure everything is rosy for you and so you want your money back when things don't play out how you expect? You know, in our, in our, when we enter into chapter four, Israel themselves, they, they struggle with that kind of picture of God and, and it became disturbing for them. But, but, but why would God do this? Why would God allow a feature of life, the, the, really the most important feature of Hannah's life to be characterized by loss and what she doesn't have. He's prompting something here and she becomes driven to prayer out of her distress. And you can learn that from her example here. She, she is in agony and in worry, and, and, and the, the text says she directs her prayer toward the Lord. It's a reason for her to go to God, not drift away from God, even in the length of time that she's been experiencing this. But we have here a case of mistaken identity that plays out. I, I posted on Instagram the question, tell me about a time you were mistaken for someone else. And uh, of course, a lot of the siblings get mistaken for one another and, and don't tend to appreciate that. So if that's Sam and Ava Rockefeller, not liking that you know, they're called one or the other, uh, Savannah and Veronica. Uh, Daisy has been mistaken on purpose as she's you know, been a stand-in and extra in, in plays. Uh, you know, sorry guys get mistaken for each other, Seth and Peter, nobody can tell you all apart. Um, Abby Lemoyne, Abby Burke Lemoyne, and Ryan Gosling have been mistaken for each other, apparently. And then things like this. Amarissa said, I was at a show for my friend, and the girl next to me turned to me and said, Hey, it's been forever. And then she kind of awkwardly looked away, went and found her mom, you know, and re realized the mistake that she made. I, I once did that to somebody in church. I, I had a note I was going to give to Ben Osanak. And I was walking behind, and there was this bald dude that I just saw his head, and I, and I dropped it in his lap. And he turned around, and I was like, uh, that's not for you. I, I never met this guy before, but all bald guys look alike from behind. Um, so it happens. Um, well, here, here you have this identity confusion take place, and there's this guy named Eli who mistakes Hannah for somebody else. All right, so look in verse 10. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I'm not even going to draw that out. She, she's saying, you give this to me, I'm just going to surrender it right back into your hands for your use and your control. Right? And no razor shall touch his head, which is just a fancy way of saying that he's going to belong to God. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was speaking in her heart. So something's happening on the the inside, on the on the, the kind of the invisible dimension of who she is. She is engaging God. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you, right? Uh, It's a little ironic that Eli, who has such a hard time in the next chapter, we're going to see, working up the courage to rebuke his own sons, you know, finds it easy to boss around Hannah here in this moment. So you kind of get a glimpse into his priorities. But he forms a judgment about her based on what his eyes see and how he takes her when something was happening in her heart beyond what he could see. And, and this, is, this is an important thing to learn. And, and honestly, a, a lot of people don't do this well, but, but young people in particular, we don't always have a category for this. When somebody is walking through a time of suffering, they're not always easy to interact with. Like they, they don't have like handles to hold on to. They're a little prickly. They, they, they have an edginess to them sometimes. Or, or sometimes it's like all your go-to ways of trying to engage somebody don't work because you've got jokes to tell and those don't seem to land because everything is colored gray in their life and so they don't laugh at what you have to say. And again, from that you could conclude uh, this person has the personality of mayonnaise or you know, they, they must really not like you. Uh, but, but maybe they are, like Hannah, troubled in spirit, and, and, it, and it takes an ability to see what God sees. We're going to hear later on in 1 Samuel, God doesn't look at outward appearances. God looks at the heart, and maybe in their heart they are troubled, but maybe they're even looking to the Lord, but outwardly it's a little rough. We need to learn how to be patient with one another in that. But Hannah answered this to him, verse 15. No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's a, that's a great description of prayer, by the way. There's many ways you can talk about prayer, but one of them is you take what's inside of your soul and you pour it out before God, and he receives it all from you. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Right, her, her countenance lifts. Her appearance, her appearance changes after this exchange. But notice, nothing about the visible features of life for her have changed in this moment. She just has a renewed confidence in the promise of God, in his faithfulness, in his care for her. And so something's been stirred up. There's been an encounter with the Lord that has strengthened her on the inside and has affected her demeanor 
And so she's going to be able to go home and eat the potluck and join in with everybody else. But God is doing something here for this woman and for all history. And he does it out of her need. And, and it's striking to follow certain themes in Scripture, and the Old Testament's loaded with these. Give me some other examples of women in Scripture that uh, were wanting to be pregnant but couldn't be. Rebecca, and Rebecca's mother-in-law was Sarah. Yeah, yeah. So Sarah... You know, she, she's really, really old, and so that's a problem for her. Rebecca's not as old, but she has her own fertility struggles that she's walking through. Um, you know, later on, you follow the, the, the narrative through. What, yeah, Micah. Uh, Ruth, I don't think, ha had that as part of her, her story, although she was a widow, and then she was remarried, and so God did rescue her from... Uh, bitterness in, in that sense. Uh, but yeah, Elizabeth in the New Testament with John the Baptist, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Who, you know, he, he is born of a, of a virgin. And so God, again and again, does something new out of circumstances that appear impossible. And yet, they're like Plato in his hands to do his work. He loves to do this. Look at this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, Hannah, therefore, shares in a fellowship of barrenness. Barrenness is another word for not being able to have children. And it is frequently in this fellowship that new chapters in Yahweh's history, it's the name of God, with his people begin. Begin with nothing. Right? Sometimes I ask y'all, what's been going on this week? And you're like, nothing. Nothing. You're just advertising, I have been bored out of my brains. Uh, God can do a lot with nothing. He created the whole universe out of it. That's what he does. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. I love that. This matter goes beyond the particular situations of biblical barren women. We are facing one of the principles of Yahweh's modus operandi. Y'all know what MO is? Somebody's MO? That's their modus operandi. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. All right, next scene is going to highlight that and put it in focus. We've considered Hannah's appearance. Let's think about Israel's appearance toward the beginning of 1 Samuel. If, if you flip back, you got the book of Ruth. You know, Mike was talking about that. And if you flip back one more book, you have the, the, the book of Judges. And so the tail end of the book of Judges, 1 Samuel picks up from that moment in, in history. In fact, there's overlap between these, these two books and some of the things that are, that are taking place there. And, and here's where the book of Judges lands. In chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody engaged life based on what appeared to them and what they thought worked. 
and the result was moral chaos. Everything from totally stupid to totally tragic decisions get made in the book of Judges as people just do what makes sense to them and live life how they feel. And, and I hope you pay attention to this. You live in a culture that tells you that's right and noble. You should do what feels good to you. You should live your dream. You should do what makes sense on the inside of you, and none of the haters should tell you that you can't do that, right? So, so what was a statement describing chaos in the book of Judges has become the anthem of your generation. I hope you're able to listen to that because fish don't always know that they're wet and you might not always realize what you're, you're swimming in here. But this is the, this is the day and, and yet religious stuff is happening all the same. There's offerings that are going on. There's no temple yet that hasn't been built yet, but you have the tabernacle, the calendar of events, of uh, festivals, and Passover, and, and all these things that Israel was supposed to celebrate, and offerings, those things were still happening in the midst of what were dark times. And, and darkness has invaded that environment as well. So look in chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Aren't you glad your name wasn't like written in the Bible? Sorry, Eli. Um, they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So you were supposed to bring your little offering, and, 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 and you know, the, there, there'd be a portion of that that would, would burn off, and some that would be offered to the Lord, and some that you'd take home and feed your family. But you would go and do that at Shiloh, and the man with the fork, he's got like a trident stick out there, would shove it in, and anything that would come off, including the whole thing, I guess, if you were able to get that, he would claim as his. And if you were to object to that. Look at this. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So they treated it like it was some kind of butcher. We've had a lot of foot traffic happening in this room. Um, and if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. And so the Shiloh mob would come on the scene and, and take your food out of your family. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, and they sinned in other ways that get outlined later in the chapter if you're curious on reading the dark details. Keep reading that later on. Maybe that'll make you read your Bible tonight. Um, but Eli's sons... They've got this outward appearance. They've got the status. They're, they're wearing priestly garments. They look like they're supposed to be functioning in the leadership of God's people. Services are happening. The first church of Shiloh is opened up and people are in attendance. But did you notice this phrase? Verse 12. They did not know the Lord. 
That's shocking. Right? Don't read past those details quickly. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean they never heard of him. Yahweh? Who's that? You know, is he like Baby Yoda? Um, they knew who he was, but their knowledge was superficial. They knew of him, but they did not know him. All right, so you can go to church. You can be in a Christian home. Apparently, you can be in leadership and not know the Lord. Things are not always as they appear. And, and, and something that you know, we're looking to experience if you're, especially if you've grown up in this kind of environment, is you, know, you, you learned how to manage the appearances really well. You, know, you, you learn what Christians say and don't say. Some of y'all struggle with even that. Um, but you kind of you learn the rules of your behavior. But this, this in-the-heart dimension that catches the eye of God, right, that, that's what we're looking to see changed. And so we, when we were visiting with, with Ephesians 4 uh, last week, remember, the, the, the stuff that you put off and the stuff that you put on is because there are these deceitful desires, these heart realities that God wants to touch and impact and change the things that you want so that the choices you make, they come from a heart that wants God. Do you have a heart that wants God, that wants more of him, that wants to know him, that wants to live in a way that's pleasing him? Or do you know how to keep up appearances? This is is a dire condition for the people of God to be in. When even their leadership are clueless when it comes to being in touch with what God once. This, this is a troubling place. Like, like Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas, and yet Aslan is on the move. Because you, you, you get these little details that show up very, very subtly, right? So, you know, Hannah has Samuel. She names him Samuel because she asked for him from the Lord. His, his, his name means that God has heard her request. Um, and then, and then, just while you have described all the, the mess that the, the Shiloh mob is managing, you have little details that keep popping up, right? In, in verse 11, you, you see this. Let me, let me uh, flip back there. Chapter 2, verse 11. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest, and then you got that section we just read, Eli's worthless sons, you know, all, all the stuff that they do. And then verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod, which is kind of this like long garment, but it, it's what the, the priest would wear. He's, he's like a little miniature priest. Isn't that cute? Um, and, and then you have this description starting in verse 22. You know, Eli's very old. He finally gets around to saying, hey, you know, maybe you guys shouldn't be doing what you're doing to his, his sons. Uh, too little, too late. And then verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now, who does that make you think of? 
and he grew in favor and stature with the Lord and with man. Anybody else? David, I can't remember if David gets described in that way, but you might, you might got that one right. Anybody else? The answer is always Jesus. <laughs> Again, less orange. Um, Jesus, G Luke chapter 2, Jesus grew in favor and stature and wisdom with God and with man. And so here, here you have this, this, this glimmer of hope that's being described. In the midst of all the darkness, in between scenes where everything seems to be falling apart, this prophet, priest, and judge is being raised up. He's the man who's going to anoint the king in Israel and ultimately bring about salvation to the world through his son, Jesus Christ, right? So n nothing about the appearance of visiting the, the, the nation of Israel in whatever year in time we find ourselves here would, would give, you, give you a sense that God's up to something here. God's on the move. God's about to change the trajectory of everybody's life and the course of history for this nation. Sometimes it just looks like there's a little boy in a long dress and he's doing stuff behind the scenes and yet God can be at work. All right, God is the final person to see his appearing. All right, chapter three, verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The, the, there's a man, I can't remember his name, but he just recently passed away, who uh, came up with most of the sounds that get used in film today. You know, a lot, a lot, especially like the, the horror film sounds, the little shrieks, and, and, and he, he would like put things underwater and, and have a microphone right outside of it and, and make some sound and record that. And so, you know, you, you guys instinctually know when you hear certain things, you know, your, your, your goosebumps kind of get raised at that point in the movie. Something bad's about to happen, the little, little shrieks and, and, and suspense builders. Uh, if you read this line right here, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. What are the background sounds for that? This is a freak out moment right here. That was well attempted, Micah, but not quite. Um, this is disturbing. That the voice of God would be rare among the people of God. Like, what do you think you need most in this moment? You need a strong leader? Well, Israel needs that, right? Hannah needs a child. There are a lot of needs that get represented here. The people coming to do the Shiloh offering feel like they, they need people that will treat us better than this. But the greatest need that the people of God have is for the voice of God. And God is about to turn up the volume on his voice I love the way that Dale Ralph Davis puts it. He says, it is a sign of God's grace when God's word has free course among God's people. 
And, and, and you know, there could be a problem on two ends of that. God, God in his plan and purposes wasn't providing frequent prophetic words at this point. Right? You and I have a lot of God's speech right here. And yet we could never be accessing it. Or when we do, we have ears that are stuffed with gunk and need to be cleaned out. I heard somebody describing that recently where like the, their, their, their head was sloshing around because there just was too much fluid in there that they had they have to, uh, you know, you could probably describe it for, for us, Chrissy. Uh, you ever had to do one of those procedures? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's funky, isn't it? Um, we got gunk in our ears and distractions and noise and the voice of God has been drowned out and become a whisper. A sign of health is when God's word has free course among his people. But, but look at this contrast of pictures. All right, verse two. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And so you, you, you have Eli's waning vision. This, this man who, who's supposed to be a seer among the people of God, he's supposed to be a bit of a visionary, he, his eyesight is retreating. And, and not much appears to him lately. And yet, yet, yet that description, the, the, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. There is still light in a dark place. That sets up what happens next. Verse four, then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. All right, we got another case of Mistaken identity here. God gets mistaken for somebody else. Then verse 6, Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Y'all know this story. It's probably your favorite one, you know, to act out when you're teaching children's ministry if you serve there. Uh, then Eli said, I did not call, son. Lie down again. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Verse 7 and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, that's a very different sense. Verse 7, then, then the fact that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, didn't know the Lord. Right? What, what, what's being described here yet is uh, Samuel hasn't yet discerned God's voice, discerned the way that God speaks and relates with people. He hadn't yet received the call and the awakening of God. Verse eight, the Lord called Samuel again the third time and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place and the Lord came and stood. Right? This is dramatic right here. The Lord shows up, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. 
And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. You know what stands out to me there other than the word tingle, which is kind of funny to say? Um, Three times God calls. And the first two times Samuel totally misfires. And there's no rebuke of that. I mean, do, do you see something here? Right? What, what, do you, what do you apply from this, this passage? How do, you, how do you take that into your own life and in, in, in the way that God interacts with you? You, know, you? you may or may not hear somebody calling tonight. It's probably your brother or sister calling from the other room, telling you to turn down whatever you're playing or listening to. Um, we might not have this kind of experience, but you and I relate with this kind of God. This kind of God who is patient, who is kind, who relates with us in our weaknesses, in the moments when we totally miss it, and it's like it's smacking us on the side of the head and we're just oblivious to what he's wanting us to see, what he's wanting us to recognize, what should be clear to us, and yet we're not able to see it. Right, so, so Samuel interacts with, with, with something very differently than the guys who ought to have known better, and, and they're on their last warning. But God, God shows patience with a, a young man who doesn't quite get it, who hasn't quite navigated how to hear the voice of God. I think that's helpful. It, it, it's helpful to see that that's the way that God is toward us, I mean, that, that invites me to come to him. That invites me to come to him like Hannah did with all my mess and my stress and my worry and how I look drunk on the outside and pour out my soul before him. It's, it's a helpful picture for the parents here as you're relating with your, your children and their areas of struggle and confusion and what they get at this point and what they don't get. Once again, Samuel, Samuel. The invitation is extended, the call is made, and at some point, the voice is recognized and he responds. We need to be learning how to receive the voice of God in, in the variety of ways that God speaks. And do, do, you, do you know what God sounds like through his word? You hear an idea out there, you, 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 you come across some cultural message, does, do you know what that, does that sound like God? Or does that sound like what opposes God? Jesus says, my, my sheep hear my voice. They know my accent. They know the sound of my speech. They come when I call, they run from the hirelings. You've been around God and around his word enough to know his accent, to know what he's like. You know, we're, we're not in the place of Samuel being an Old Testament prophet and he had obviously a very unique call and role to play in, in the kingdom of God. But there's also a dimension of this, of, of learning, learning to hear how the Holy Spirit speaks in ways through scripture, in ways that just look like God bringing things to mind, God bringing about conviction, 
God leading you to consider somebody and pray for them? Right? Do, do you have your antenna raised up that you can be the age that Samuel is here and God is speaking and yet you, you, don't, you haven't yet learned that, but he wants you to learn it. Right? There, there, there's no minimum age required when it comes to hearing the voice of God in your life. Here's how this gets phrased, the end of this chapter, verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God became visible through his word. Right? What does it look like to, to see God? What does it look like when God shows up? Throughout scripture, God shows up through his word. He speaks through it. You got a lot of appearances happening in these stories. A lot of misfires and misjudgment, but the, the, the one whose appearance we need to see most is God showing up in the greatest moments of need, in the darkest times, sometimes in, in the most quiet, subtle ways, and yet working often in ways we cannot yet see, but we can learn to discern and learn to recognize when we're near his voice. And we'll be exploring that in the weeks to come. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word, for books like First Samuel, that we get to have the adventure of studying. Lord, we, we want to be able to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Give us ears to hear Get the gunk out of our heads. Quiet the other noise and distractions. And, and Lord, the ways that you want us to see life with your eyes and not judge just based on what makes sense to us. Lord, we want to learn that from you. We want to be helped by that. We want to be encouraged and challenged by that. We want to be sustained by what you are doing in our lives and in this world. So help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.